Welcome to the Return to the Forgotten Path podcast. Your host today is Laverne Cox, and every week a friend will join me on this journey to a forgotten pathway that leads to rest and restoration. This podcast is a weekly Bible study of this week's Torah portion, or Parsha. It is a weekly reading um, study according to the Jewish annual Torah cycle, and every week we will have an in-depth Bible study filled with both historical and cultural viewpoints as it pertains to the return to the forgotten pathway that is increasingly happening all around the world. We will share our opinions, our review of our studies from this week's Torah, which is also known as the Pentateuch of the first five books of the Bible, as well as our study of the Half Torah and the Brit Hadashah or the New Testament or Renewed Covenant readings. Why are we doing this? Why return to a forgotten path? Return which in Hebrew means shavu, is um, an, a call or a beckoning um, to the forgotten path, which is also known as the, the way or the old path. Jeremiah 6.16 puts it this way. This is what the Lord says. Stand at the crossroads and look. Ask for the ancient paths. Ask where the good way is and walk in it, and you will find rest for your souls. In Isaiah chapter 2, verse 2 through 5, It is also spoken of in this way. In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as the highest of the mountains. It will be exalted above the hills and all nations will stream to it. Many people will come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the temple of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways so that we may walk in his paths. The law will go out from Zion and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He will judge between the nations and settle disputes for many peoples. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. And nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. Come, descendants of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. This is obviously referencing the Messianic era, but there are additional references to this continuously throughout the scriptures. For example, in Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 7, it says, remember the days of old and consider the years of many generations. Ask thy father and he will show thee by elders and they will tell thee. Um, Jeremiah 7 verse 23 puts it as well like says, but this thing commanded I them saying, obey my voice and I will be your God and you shall be my people and walk ye in all the ways that I have commanded you that it may be well unto you. And again, Isaiah chapter 30 verse 21 says, and thy ears shall hear a word behind thee saying, this is the way walk ye in it and when you turn to the right hand and when you turn to the left isn't that awesome you know the lord himself his voice his spirit his shekinah his glory is calling us to return to this pathway this week's parshat is vayaki and he lived the Torah portion is found in Genesis chapter 47, verses 28 through chapter 50, verse 26. The half Torah is found in 1 Kings chapter 2, 1, um, excuse me, 1 Kings chapter 2, verse 1 through chapter 2, verse 12. And the Brit Hadashah is taken from Hebrews 11, verses 21 through 22, as well as 1 Peter 1, 3 through 9.
For this week's tour portion, today I have in studio my husband, RJ. Hey, RJ. Hey, guys. Well, let's begin with the blessing before the Torah reading. Would you give me the honor, RJ, and being the leader for the call and response? Baku et Adonai Hamvarak. Baruch Adonai Hamvarak Leolam Vayed. Baruch Adonai Hamvarak Leolam Vayed. Baruch Adonai Eloheinu Melech HaOlam Asher Vakobanu Mikol Hamim V'Natanana Tetato Baruch Adonai Noten HaTorah. Amen. Bless the Lord, the Blessed One. Blessed is the Lord, the Blessed One, for all eternity. Blessed are you, O Lord, our God, King of the universe, who has chosen us from all peoples and given us his Torah. Blessed are you, O Lord, giver of the Torah. Amen. 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 Genesis chapter 47, verse 28. Yaakov lived in the land of Egypt 17 years. Thus, Yaakov lived to be 147 years old. The time came when Israel was approaching death. So he called for his young Yosef and said to him, If you truly love me, please put your hand under my thigh and pledge that, out of consideration for me, you will not bury me in Egypt. Rather, when I sleep with my fathers, you are to carry me out of Egypt and bury me where they are buried. He replied, I will do as you have said. He said, Swear it to me. And he swore to him. Then Israel bowed down at the head of his bed. All right. So this week's Torah portion is filled with um, the preparation for Yaakov, Jacob's death, and the blessings that transpired during that season. I also, um, it's also filled with um, some form of prophecy in regards to the children of Israel, and also a, a forthcoming uh, tale as to the period of mourning. Um, upon Jewish burial, um, as well as some highlights, I think, in regards to things that were mentioned previously that we were not fully engaged as readers um, in understanding what transpired. So it's going to be a look forward, look back type of portion. So let me begin with the, the first part of the Torah reading, which you just read. The request or requirement, the swearing of Joseph to ensure that Jacob is buried in the land of Canaan. From my reading, it seemed that it was not just a request, but much more than that. How do you perceive it? I think it was divinely ordered. You know, somehow Jacob got the inclination that these two were to be brought into the the tribes and they were supposed to be blessed in the Oh no no Oh not his kids. We're not theirs yet. We're oh, talking about the <laughs> we're talking about the blessing of um or the requirement. The requirement that Jacob just asked of Joseph to bury him in the land of Canaan. Mm-hmm. Because he asked the quest the request just what you just read. You asked the request and then he also made him swear that he would do it. And if you um recall in Genesis when Abraham requires Eliezer to go out and find uh, and to promise him that his child, Isaac, would not marry people of that area, Canaan. He swore in the same fashion that the hand under the thigh. And you see it again here in the beginning of our Torah portion that Joseph has to swear to Yaakov, Jacob, that he is going to fulfill this request, this, this promise then. And then he ultimately swears on top of what he promised 
in that pledge um, to his father. That's what I was referring to. Well, it just comes down to making sure that you're staying within the community of faith. You know, he knew that Jacob knew he was a stranger in a strange land. And as prosperous as things were going in Egypt, these were not his people of faith. And he wanted to be back with his culture and his faith community. So he, you know, as the Middle Eastern custom at the time was that hand under the thigh was really under those male private parts as a symbol of virility, you're swinging on everything that makes you a man. And then he just made him add a double dose of promise me, swear that you're going to do this thing. I don't want to be in this place. It was that urgent to him. And so Joseph did that. It was just really, uh, I need to get back to my people. Don't keep me here. Absolutely. Um, I see uh, the, the promise in that light as well. And as we're entering into this Torah portion, I really want to clarify a few things as well about um, what happened preceding this uh, swearing to him that he will fulfill this promise. Um, as you see, as we enter into chapter 48, um, Joseph and Jacob uh, have another interaction. And at this time, it's still in that 17th year of Yaakov being within the land of Egypt. Um, but it says, it says as this way, Joseph was told, behold, your father is ill. So he took with him his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, and it was told to Jacob, your son Joseph has come to you. I always think about these things, about these, the way that there is paraphrase as being told. In other words, not part of the same household, maybe not part of the same uh, daily uh, convergence of conversation. So this is like a an appointment, more or less. This is urgent. For example, you know, if God forbid somebody in our extended family, a call was sent out. So a call is sent out, behold someone. It says again at multiple times, but then Israel summoned his strength and he sat up in bed and Jacob said to Joseph, God almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me and said to me, behold, I will make you fruitful and multiply you and I will make you a company of peoples and will give you this land to your offspring after you for an everlasting possession. I'm going to stop right there. I read this and I, I, the first time I read it, I ran over it. The problem is for us reading it, we're not always going back into the prior Torah portion. So the prior Torah portion, what he's referring to right here is actually what transpired in Vayishlak. Um, in Vayishlak, it's after the period of Dinah being taken advantage of by the son of, Shech, the son of Shechem. And the two brothers, Simeon and Levi, going in plotting more or less that they were going to kill them on the, the worst night uh, after the circumcision and then going in and killing the men of Shechem. This is a period after that the Lord literally speaks to Yaakov because Yaakov is fearful of his life for the people around him, for the things that they had done, Simeon and Levi had done. And the Lord appears to him and commands him to leave and to go to Bethel. Now, this whole entire chapter, when I read it in the first um, reading a few weeks back, it made some sense, but it didn't connect as it's going to connect right here in um, Vayaki. 
And the reason is because there's two things that transpire in the leaving that I did not see besides this appearance and promise of the Lord. So yes, during that period of time, two things transpire. Jacob is told to leave. Jacob leaves. Then he commands the people of his household to get rid of their foreign gods, to wash themselves and prepare to travel to Bethel. They bury the gods under the oak tree of Shechem. Long story short, by the time they arrive in Bethel, the Lord appears to them. And he promises him that he will be fruitful, that he will multiply. And basically, you're going to, your inheritance, your children are going to um, to occupy this land. They will take over this land. Um, And when that promise is given, what happens and transpires after that finally connected with me this week. Because as Joseph, Jacob himself is retelling what happened in 35 himself, chapter 35, um, excuse me, what he's retelling in Genesis chapter 48 is what transpired in Genesis chapter 35. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to request that everybody take some time and read what happens in Genesis chapter 35 because it's important in regards to even how the blessings are going to um, be attested to and the provisions of the inheritance that's going to, or the portions for the inheritance that's going to come after it. So it's directly connected. So I'm not going to go into every detail, but from that, we get what is about to happen in terms of the, the blessings over Joseph and the blessing over the entire 12. Okay. So just for your own reference, go back and read. So we continue in Genesis chapter 48 and now it says, I will make you a company of peoples is what the Lord had promised. And now your two sons, this is Jacob speaking to Joseph. And now your two sons who were born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt are mine. Ephraim and Manasseh shall be mine as Reuben and Simeon are. So that is chapter 48, verse five. And that was the first light bulb moment when I originally read. And it was why specifically does the Lord say Ephraim and Manasseh shall be mine as Reuben and Simeon are mine. Mm -hmm. So I spent some time and I did some more research. Now, the first thing to note is that Reuben and Simeon are the first and second born. Um, Ephraim and Manasseh, however, are second and firstborn um, in in that order. And it's interesting because we have yet to hear of what's going to come behind this in those first set of words. But the first thing I'm noticing is why is he transposing the first and the second with the, the, his first and second? And in it, in it, I was like, wait a second, is this some, is this adoption? Is this more than just an adoption? Because I always thought of this as originally reading the story as now Ephraim and Manasseh are going to become two additional tribes mm-hmm. for Israel. But this is much more than adoption. It's like replacement mm-hmm. in a way. And this is my perception. There's some aspects of understanding this that you're going to see in Genesis chapter 49 that um, more or less says it's not replacement. It's like integration. They're going to become integrated within one another. But it seems like in those initial words, instead of Reuben and Simeon, first and second, Ephraim and Manasseh shall be mine. And it continues. And the children that you fathered after them shall be yours. They shall be called by the name of their brothers. They, whatever children you father afterwards, shall be called by the name of their brothers, Ephraim and Manasseh, in their inheritance. 
As for me, when I came from Padan, to my sorrow, Rachel died in the land of Canaan on the way. Again, this is referencing Genesis chapter 35. Because after the blessing and the appearance of the Lord and the, the blessing of going to receive this land and being multi, be fruitful and multiply, Rachel is about to give birth and she is giving birth to Benjamin or Benjamin. And it says that both in chapter 48 as well as in Genesis chapter 35 that Rachel dies, um, specifically Genesis chapter 539, and she's buried on the way. What is interesting again about this is that as Jacob is retelling this, he specifically goes into what I think is a detail that is not heard in Genesis chapter 35. So I'm going to read it more clearly and hopefully you hear it. Genesis chapter 48, verse 7. As for me, when I came from Padan, to my sorrow, Rachel died in the land of Canaan on the way, when there was still some distance to go to Ephrath. And I buried her there on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. Now, the thing that is done in English that is not very clear is this is was commanded. And it's going to come back up again. In other words, Joseph is hearing that Jacob was commanded by God to bury Rachel or Rachel Raquel um, on the way. In other words, he, he could have carried the body and not buried her on the roadside. He, he was commanded that he should do so. And that's more so the interpretation from the Hebrew that this was a command from God that he must bury Rachel there. And this is important because now when we hear the blessings in chapter 49, it's going to be connected to even where Rachel is buried. Okay, so in the original reading, I didn't see the connection. I didn't understand it, but it does come out as to why he is, he, why is he mentioning this to Joseph as he's about to bless Joseph's two sons? All right. Okay. So when Israel saw Joseph's two sons, notice this is verse eight. He's already commanded that he's going to bless Ephraim and Manasseh, and they're going to become his adopted Reuben and Simeon. More or less. Mm -hmm. Now, he didn't even know that the children were there because the question that comes out of Israel's mouth regarding the people that he sees, he says, who are these? Right. Who are these? This question, who are these, is going to be heard multiple times, echoed multiple times in the scriptures. And the, in the Christian Bible, we hear the same thing. Who are these? Reference in regards to Revelation 7, this multitude of crowd dressed in all white. Who are these? Mm -hmm. So now when Israel saw Joseph's sons, he says, who are these? Verse chapter 9 says, Joseph says to his father, These are my sons whom God has given me here. And he said, Bring them to me, please, that I may bless them. Now the eyes of Israel were dim with age, so that he could not see. So Joseph brought them near him, and he kissed them and embraced them. And Israel said to Joseph, I never expected to see your face, and behold, God has let me see your offspring also. Then Joseph removed them from his knees, and he bowed himself with his face to the earth, and Joseph took them both, Ephraim in his right hand towards Israel's left hand, and Manasseh in his left hand towards Israel's right hand. He brought them near him, and Israel stretched out his right hand and laid it on the head of Ephraim, who was the younger, and his left hand on the head of Manasseh, crossing his hands for Manasseh, who was the firstborn, and blessed Joseph and said, Okay, 
-hmm. He's crossing his hand and the scripture says, and he blessed Joseph and said, the God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my long life to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless the boys. And in them, let my name be carried on. And the name of my fathers, Abraham and Isaac, let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. The actual um, Hebrew there of the, the term, let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth, is actually Melohayim. And one interpretation that was given about that specific verse is that they can be considered the fullness of the, the nations or the Gentiles because the word for nations in the Hebrew Bible is goy. Mm -hmm. So the blessing that is placed upon even Isaac, to, um, excuse me, Israel's n new name um, transfers Ephraim and Manasseh, because he just said, give them my name, Ephraim and Manasseh. These two children are to bear this name, bear his name. And according to the blessing that is transferred, they are to grow into the fullness of the Gentiles. That is a translation of that verse. Interesting. I thought it was extremely interesting because we also see in the new covenant or the renewed covenant the fullness of the Gentiles mentioned as well. Um, so we'll come back to that. If you can find the scriptures that refers to it, it will be perfect to make a correlation. So when Joseph saw that his father had done this, what Joseph is sees displeases him. And he says, no, not that way, my father, since this one is the firstborn, but you put your right hand on his head. But his father refused. And he says, I know my son, I know. He also shall become a people and he also shall be great. Nevertheless, his younger brother shall be greater than he, and his offering, offspring, excuse me, will become a multitude of nations. The Melahalim, which is Goyim, rather, which is the fullness of the nations. So he blessed them that day, saying, By you, Israel will pronounce blessings, saying, God make you as Ephraim and Manasseh. And that is the the blessing on the children of Israel, on all male heirs of the children of Israel. Um, every week, the father normally blesses his children and says, may God make you like Ephraim and Manasseh. Um, still to this day, even extended um, people that are coming in, when they learn of the, the ironic blessing, also extend this blessing upon the children of the, you could say the converted, the converts into the Jewish or the Israelite faith. And so with this blessing, we're seeing something that was commanded from Israel himself that is being brought still to this day um, amongst the children of Israel, which I think is tremendous and, and is awe-inspiring. First of all, in many human traditions, nothing lasts that long. But even still to this day, this blessing is still being pronounced. Um, and even more so than that, we see that in the preceding verses, Israel is expounding upon what this blessing is. Um, because as he's about to die, he again says, I'm going to go, the, I have given you an, an additional blessing. Now, the reason I, I'm going to mention this blessing, because 
this blessing is going to tie right back again to Genesis 35. All right, so here's the blessing he says to Joseph in addition to what he's already compounded in blessing Ephraim and Manasseh. He says, Genesis chapter 48, Behold, I'm about to die, but God will be with you and bring you again to the land of your fathers. Moreover, I have given to you rather than to your brothers one mountain one mountain slope is how it is reading in the New King James Version, that I took from the hand of the Amorites with my sword and with my bow. I stopped right there and I, I highlighted it during my research because I was like, when did Jacob take land uh, from the hand of the Amorites with a sword and a bow? That was my question. Mm-hmm. And in my study, I found that it wasn't a physical fight. Hmm. It wasn't a physical hand and sword or a sword and bow. And to liken this into a better understanding, if you're actually in a physical war, a sword would not be the first piece of warfare that you would use. It wouldn't be the, the weapon of your warfare. It would be the bow because you want to strike your enemy from a distance versus a sword being more intimate and close encounter type battle. And the explanation is that the the weapons of Yaakov's warfare were not carnal. They weren't physical, Mm. but they were mighty until the pulling down of strongholds. Now, the people around him, it says in Genesis chapter 34, that they would have been angered by what Simeon and Levi had done. And he feared, Yaakov feared that they would basically team up against them and create war with them. And when the Lord calls them out to Bethel, what most of us tend to read over really quickly is what the Bible says actually transpired after they separated themselves from the idols and they cleansed themselves, purified themselves, and started to walk towards Bethel. Because what happens in the the verse right after, prior to the Lord uh, appearing to him, is like a one-liner or two-liner that speaks to something happening to the people of the area where they originally were in. Okay. Oh, and then if we remember from our initial readings of Abraham, of Isaac, the people that lived and dwelt in the area that Yaakov is now living amongst are Amorites. So this that he's referring to in chapter 48, when he's referring to the land that I took by the hand of the Amorites, was not done by his physical hand. When they said sword and bow, the sword being the sword of his prayer and the bow of his supplication. The supplication was all those acts that he was doing by way of, a, in a you could say, following God's commandments. He built this altar. The, the Lord literally commanded him to go to Bethel. He, he decides that he is going to follow. He's going to go to Bethel. He says, build me an altar. He says, okay, I'm going to build you an altar. But before he even gets to the building of the altar, he recognizes that his household is not prepared to build the altar of God. Hmm. And he commands his household to separate themselves from the foreign gods and to purify themselves prior to. And it kind of echoes what you're going to see, to me at least, of a few other occurrences. Um, Which one comes to your mind that sounds exactly like this? The separate yourself from the foreign gods and purify yourself. The only thing I can think of was a Mount Sinai experience, but I don't know if that's where you're going with this. Oh, absolutely. That's exactly what I'm thinking as well. But there is also other occurrences throughout the Old Testament or the Tanakh where the kings would say the exact same things when they are, before they would go up 
to war or they needed God's favor, they would say the same thing. Let's separate ourselves from these foreign gods and purify ourselves for this this work. And I think it is echoing um, or mirroring this throughout the scriptures that before God can bless or create the environment for you have to follow for his instructions to be manifest in your life then I see that you have to do your part and it wasn't very clear originally in reading it but after rereading it three and four times and trying to figure out where is this sword and bow coming from and I realized Jacob did something that God did not specifically state he did not specifically say remove these things mm-hmm. it's like Jacob recognizing that sometimes these things come about in our lives to show us who we are and he, these things are not benefiting us. Let's remove that which doesn't benefit us. Let's separate those ourselves. Let's cleanse ourselves from those things that are not helping us to become who we, are, we ought to. And he commands that over his entire household, which is exactly what a leader should do. And in some ways, in my own ears, when I read the Torah portion, sometimes Jacob did not seem to have that warrior spirit, but in the way that he commands his household, he is setting up law and order. Mm. So, so a different way to be a warrior. A different way to be a warrior. Interesting. So he is commanding his household by way of the sword and the bow, by the way of his prayers and his supplications, by maintaining the the environment, the 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 rules, the, the requirements for worship. So I think that's awesome. That's strong. That's a strong leader. It's one of the leaders that we all hope to have in our life um, to to guide us because they are not one that don't recognize our weaknesses. They are ones that try to take the strengths that we do have and position them in their rightful place. Um, sometimes we don't recognize it in the way that we ought to. And, and when I look back on the life of Jacob and the way that he treated his sons, he is glorifying them in the level of their abilities or their giftings. And even in the what we read in 49, you'll get there. <laughs> he's also doing the same thing. He's, he is utilizing this as an opportunity to tell them of themselves, but not in a way that is for destruction. It's for the total redemption. It's like if I, if I can mirror out to you what, who you really are, then maybe you can prepare yourself to live by these guidelines because you recognize there's weakness outside of it. And that's kind of like one of the things that I know for human, my human nature, I have to recognize that I'm not my source, I'm not my supply, and nor am I capable of being any of those things. So if I find weakness in myself, I shouldn't beat myself up, up about those things because... It is the intention of God to be that for me. His intention is to be my source and supply. So my desire to be perfection unto myself or to fulfill my own goodness is in some way pride. Mm -hmm. And in him fulfilling his, his work in me and becoming strength for me and becoming um, source and whatever provider or defender, he is fulfilling what unity really is and and true redemption truly is it is not one and this one person find, standing up against the entire world like we all have those areas where we are standing in the shadow of who we ought to be but we are not fully uh capable we're not strengthened in such a way that we're fully 
with a full pie. And so we need to take homage to the, 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 the leaders that God sends into our life that gives us a reflection of where our weaknesses are, but they also allow us to shine and where our strengths and our, our gifts and our beauty and our abilities um, come from. So I see that. I know that that's not what is really talked about, but I did see that in this sword and bow that he's now bestowing. Yes, of course, this is the birthright he is giving to Joseph before he even has a conversation with the other brothers. He's giving him a birthright blessing. Um, and in the birthright blessing is the location of the land, the land inheritance that he's giving to um, his, his seed. And he's already said that his children will bear his name, which is huge. Mm-hmm. This is huge. So is this a double portion? The two things together? Perhaps. It is. Perhaps it is. Um, And then we continue in chapter 49 because this is where I've realized the chapter 49 and chapter 50 is where I believe Christian commentaries and Jewish commentators uh, differ. They differ completely in understanding these two chapters. And so because of that, I wanted to really focus first on 48 and then break into the meat of 49. Would you mind to... Please read um, the read about read chapter one through seven, please. All right. Chapter forty nine, one through seven. Then Jacob called his sons and said, Gather yourselves together that I may tell you what shall happen to you in days to come. Assemble and listen, O sons of Jacob, listen to Israel your father. Reuben, you are my firstborn. My might and the first fruits of my strength, preeminent in dignity and preeminent in power, unstable as water, you shall not have preeminence because you went up to your father's bed, then you defiled it. He went up to my couch. Simeon and Levi are brothers, weapons of violence are their swords. Let my soul come not into their counsel, O my glory be not joined to their company, for in their anger they killed men. And in their willingness, they hamstrung oxen. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. Okay. So, what stands out to you first? Doesn't seem like those two got much of a blessing at all. Seems like what everybody's been saying all along has been accurate. They got rebuked. Okay. Um, I am going to read 48, um, 49 again. Um, and I wanted to read it from a different perspective because I thought the same thing. I was like, what type of blessing is this? It starts off by saying, you know, the words that, um, the words that, uh, Jacob speaks initially leads one to believe that this is going to be like, this is the blessing before I die. This is what you've been waiting for. Um, and it starts off in some, you know, really beautiful and elegant ways talking about Reuben. Um, but then you see that that turns sharply. Um, and when it turns sharply, it's not turning from the perspective of benefit to Reuben. But it specifically says he is unstable as water and sh- you shall not have preeminence. Although you you stand in the strength and the dignity and the power, that's what, you, what your position is as the firstborn you shall not have it because you're unstable. And so he explains again 
because you went up to your father's bed and you defiled it. I did not know. Again, this is again pointing out to something that happened to, in Genesis chapter 35. This same exact account of Reuben defiling his father's bed with Rachel's um, maidservant, handmaid, however you want to pronounce it, depending on the translation, happens in Genesis chapter 35. Odd that a lot of what he's referencing happened in that one chapter, Mm -hmm. Genesis chapter 35. And then Simeon and Levi are brothers, weapons and violence uh, are their swords. Remember, Remember, he just said to Joseph that I was able to obtain the land of the Amorites by the sword and the bow. But he's comparing what he just said to Joseph in in contrast to what Simeon and Levi are used. They specifically, weapons of violence are their swords. It's in contrast to his sword. Right. Okay. So it was not by accident that that one word is mentioned there because it is in contrast to what was just mentioned previously. And he says, let my soul not come into their counsel or my glory be joined to their company. Okay. What is glory? Seems like he doesn't want them to be a part of the inheritance. Well, to a degree, but it's not, that's, that is not it. It, That's what it seems like. Glory is like your, your, the, the character, the nature of the character. The glory is the beauty of the character. In other words. Um, and what he's saying is. I, if you put them together, mm-hmm. they are going to devise anger and fierce retribution for anything. Because that's how they, they rule. For in their anger, together they killed men. And it's not, it is purposeful that they, it's mentioning they, 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 not versus one or the other. And they are mentioned together in terms of how he is, quote unquote, telling them what is about to happen to them in the last days. Um, in the Jewish perspective, this is not a, an account of what is going to happen on into them in the last days. The Christian perspective does see it though this way. Uh-huh. Um, the Jewish perspective says that the, this is uh, declaring how the inheritance was going to be divided. Okay. And so when even they come into the land in Exodus, we'll see that Simeon and Levi do not get the same type of inheritance. They do not, because this is now second, Simeon and Levi, second and third born, they obviously should have come after the firstborn who just lost his position um, in terms of being the preeminent. But he says to them together, separate them and do not allow them to lead. In other words, do not allow their counsel to lead because their anger is fierce and their wrath is very cruel. So I will divide them in Jacob and I will scatter them in Israel. Now, Jacob and Israel, are they not the same people? Seems so, but I know you got some surprise coming. <laughs> it's not a surprise. It's, just, it's Why did he use the term? Okay. Well, it seems that in the physical nature of the Simeon and Levi brother history, when Simeon and Levi, um, their, their children are leaving Exodus, they are small in number versus smaller than in number versus the other tribes. That's number one. Number two, we recognize that Levi is going to become the priest. So they have a different role. And and it's very interesting to me that Simeon, or Simon, however you pronounce it, is mentioned throughout the past three weeks. He's been mentioned um, at least once every single week. Um, And he doesn't have much of a a loud voice like Judah would have a voice as speaking for 
or on behalf of the other brothers. Okay. Simeon does not, but Simeon seemingly is like paying a heavy price for his behavior. According to the commentaries, the, the Jewish commentaries, Simeon is like a warrior. He's like, he's one of the warriors that had a voice, which is interesting that his voice is not being heard in terms of how the scripture is, um, is written, but his voice was one of terror. So whenever and wherever that this man went, especially when he's come in conjoined with his brother, violence is produced. Hence the reason that you see his actions in the defilement of Dina, or Dinah, his, his sister. And then likewise, Simeon and Levi are also part of the group of brothers that conspire to get rid of Joseph. They are collective in this nature of throw him in the pit or let's kill him originally. Let's kill him. Mm-hmm. That's what they originally devised. But instead, let's throw him into the pit. Hence, they followed Reuben's advice, but they were still seeking to do away with him and his dreams. Let's see what become of his dreams, more or less. And so the, the as Jacob is speaking, and he specifically says, I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel, the inheritance that Simeon, tribe of Simeon, and the tribe of Levi receives are not lands of their own they receive or portions of their own they receive portions within the land of judah levi um specifically simeon receives a a city within judah that's it so judah has a, a large inheritance being um you'll get to that just now the leader the and he gets the ability to lead the entire um family or the, the people of Israel. And the city that was given to Levi, because they were apportioned out to be workers within the the holy work, the holy work that they were given, meaning they were sent to be priests, was that they would not have inheritance of their own, mm-hmm. so that they were to be supplied by the children of Israel. And the children of Levi had cities throughout all of the other tribes' lands. So in other words, in every land, there was a set a group of priests that was already positioned for that particular people. And so we see that in fulfilling this covenant or this commandment or manifestation of what this is, dividing them in Jacob is like saying, um, and, and scattering them in Israel, it's like saying, whether you are to the north or to the south, you will be part of these distinct groups. Jacob being the the progeny then of the physical line or an Israel being progeny of the spiritual. So you can say like regardless of whether you are part of what we call now today Jewish people or you are part of the, the nations or the world, you are still scattered within what I've already deemed to be Israel, my own. And we've seen in modern times how um, people outside of the Jewish uh, family or the modern Jewish family that we had come to know as early as the 20th century are being found throughout the world and they have this Kohanim bloodline. Mm. Okay, so in, so so we see that the Kohanim bloodline was not just in one family. It was scattered through the physical and it was scattered throughout the earth with Israel as it was commanded here for Ephraim and Manasseh becoming the Goyim or the, the nations. So Israel becoming the Goyim or the nations. Interestingly said. Let's continue though with the other brother, you could say blessings, because this is one way of seeing it. 
because it says Jacob blesses his sons. Mm-hmm. So the next is Judah. He's the fourth brother. And Judah, your brother shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies and your father's sons shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub from the prey. My son, you have gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion and as a lioness who dares rouse him. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples, binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. He has washed his garments in wine. He has washed his garments in wine? Yeah. And his vesture in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine and his teeth whiter than milk. What type of blessing is that? What type of blessing is this Judah blessing? Seems to be very descriptive of prophecy, which I know you mentioned quite some time ago that you were going to connect the dots on. Yes, I am. So this week, I actually did some study on the rabbinic perspective as well as the Christian perspective. And I used Torah.com and TorahClass.com to assist me in breaking into the connections as to what did these blessings really mean. And I really wanted to spend some time with the blessing that was given to Ephraim and Manasseh before, and then also Judah. Now, the blessing that was just read in regards to Judah actually connects him to what is the scepter referred to, RJ, if you could recall. I don't, sorry. Okay. Well, that is the promise that is given to David. That is a prophecy that's given to David or the promise. That that your line that no that the kingship shall not depart from your line. So that's the scepter. Okay, so that's one. What is referred to? And unfortunately, I only have one screen here. So what is being referred to by the prior? Let's see, the scepter, nor the ruler's staff. What is the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him? And it says until tribute comes to him, but the re- actual. Um, the actual reading here is until Shiloh comes. Hmm. So it shall not. De- Unfortunately, due to a issue with technology, we have to pause right here and we're going to continue with a second half. At this time, we're going to close with the Etkaim, the prayer to return. Etkaim chi la makizim kimba vetom mekeha me ushar de rake ka. Darked noam vekom notivoteha shalom. Hashivenu Adonai. Eleka venashuva. Kadesh kadesh vaimenu. Kadesh vaimenu kekedam. In English, it is a tree of life to those who take hold of it and those who support it are praiseworthy. Its ways are ways of pleasantness and all its paths are peace. Bring us back, Lord, to you. And we shall come renew our days as of old. Shalom. Oh. Uh-huh.
It is our hope that you will join us as well. Feel free to comment, like, or share with your friends and family. Shalom.